Okay, so picking up from where I left off in part two, so I'm not going to be closing off. I'm just going to keep going uh, for all of these uh, panel review summary shows. Um, so I'm going to pick up. So we ended last time part two of four uh, on the Hungarian Prey Codex. Now we're going to look at the next pro-Shroud rebutting defeater to premise two of the Shroud Skeptic's argument. So if you remember... Uh, premise two in the Shroud Skeptic's argument is that the Shroud is probably medieval. And we threw the Hungarian Prey Codex at it, and we were successful. Over 53% probability of uh, being as generous as I could to the Shroud Skeptic, they still failed. It, it, The rebutting defeater we offered was successful there. But it, it's still within the agnostic range. 53 to 54% is pretty weak. Okay, well, the pro-Shroud side is not done. Next, in our Shroud panel review show part two, I brought up uh, a line, three lines of argumentation uh, based on the art history and numismatic coins argument that various pro-Shroud experts ranging from Alan Wanger to Ian Wilson uh, to Dr. Giulio Fonti have brought up. And um, I, wanna, I, I presented on the show, the panel review show, as well as my Shroud solo show part two, three lines of evidence to be discussed. So the first was based on the art history, Byzantine art and the Vinyan markings, as you're seeing right here on the Shroud Man's face. He has the 15 of these weird uh, features, and these are found on Byzantine paintings dating back all the way from uh, the mid-6th century for you know, about 540, 550 AD with the image of Edessa being discovered. Um, all the way up to 1204 and even beyond um, within the Eastern Orthodox Church. And this is supposedly saying that, well, obviously the Shroud of Turin was discovered after an earthquake in Edessa. And this is why we have this radical change. Before the 550 or 540 AD, the mid-6th century, uh, the depictions of Jesus mostly depicted him in the Greco-Roman style, or there was a Syrian style Jesus. There, it didn't look like we really knew what Jesus looked like for centuries. Um, you know, so, some had him in the traditional Jesus, the shroud man appearance that we know today, but uh, there was no set standard. And then Ian Wilson will say, well, in the mid-6th century, there became this set standard for Byzantine uh, paintings of Jesus or icons about Jesus. And that's because they found the Shroud of Turin, saw his images and said, well, these are the authoritative images. Um, so, yeah, so in terms of that argument, I presented three lines of evidence on the show. The first were the Vinyan markings related to the artistic uh, Byzantine paintings or icons. The second was Alan Wanger's forensic points of comparison uh, on some of these paintings, as well as some of the coins, uh, the Byzantine coins. And thirdly and finally, we had Giulio Fonte's 2015 statistical or probabilistic assessment proving beyond 99.99% a one chance in 10 billion billion or um, chance that these coins were had to be made using the Shroud Man from the Shroud of Turin, his face as the template for these Byzantine coins. These date back all the way to 692 to 695. Um, when it was first allowed to start depicting Jesus. Before that, you weren't allowed to depict Jesus on a coin. You had to put a lamb or a fish, something symbolic like that. 
Anyways, so I want to start with the Vinyan markings, looking at the artwork from the Byzantine period, 540 up to 1204. And as you can see, so um, Paul Vinyan was the first one in 1939 to invent these Vinyan markings. His follower uh, came up with this drawing and he added a few of his own. So, for example, he added these two uh, V shapes or, you know, incomplete triangles uh, for number three and four right here. Uh, and he also um, the enlarged left nostril and the uh, owlish eyeballs. Where is that? Uh, number 14, the owlish eyeballs. Um, so it's been added to what Paul Vinion said. Now, one thing. Um, I, I, so, yeah. So before I but what do I say by way of assessment for this? So the first thing we got to do is let us um, take a look at some of the pictures here. So let me um, exit out. And so looking at Hugh Ferry, so let's start with the number two, the three-sided square between the brows. Paul Vinion thought this was incredibly odd. It had played no important or natural purpose and so must be copied from the shroud. Hugh Ferry has utterly destroyed this. So number one, he's provided absolute proof that G this isn't a feature that's unique to Jesus. These features are on apostles, as you can see here. And we have many uh, portrayals of, let me zoom out, many portrayals of this three-sided square on people's foreheads other than Jesus. Uh, it includes emperors, uh, apostles, not just religiously motivated people. There it is again, and Saint Euphorus. Um, so, so yeah, basically, this is a, an utter failure. If you're going to say, well, they were using the shroud to depict Jesus uniquely. Um, now, I would say that there is this established link. I, I'm able to pick out this three-sided square on the shroud man's image as well. Um, so. You can barely see it with the naked eye and kind of see it kind of right there. So it's not totally perfect, but I would say it is an established link or correspondence between these paintings and the Shroud Man. Now that said, obviously because it's on other apostles, so Hugh's absolutely right that this is not unique to Jesus in Byzantine art. Uh, that's a big problem. So this single-handedly falsifies the notion, the hypothesis that uh, the shroud was the authoritative image for Jesus only. And instead you have to go for something like Paul Vinyan argued that, well, the shroud, the shroud man became representative, not just for Jesus, but for everyone. Uh, this is now how they depicted human faces, whether an emperor or, or a thing. Um, and that just becomes so vague. As I said, I'll give my overall assessment with that hypothesis. But um, in, in terms of sticking with this three-sided square, Again, Hugh provides an absolute defeater defeater here um, in terms of, well, do we need to explain these? Why are these three-sided squares being drawn on everybody in Byzantine art? Well, look at this, uh, you know, I forget his name. Uh, he's an actor from House, uh, the modern TV show. He's got this three-sided square. This is a natural occurrence in human beings. And 
this just destroys anyone using this Finian marking to try and prove it must be from the shroud. Okay, what, what else do we have? What else? Um, the transverse streak across the forehead. Everybody has creases across the forehead. This is very easily naturally explained. Once again, it's on various uh, non-Jesus figures and stuff like that. There's the line, transverse line. Um, yeah, so this is this is a failure as an argument as well and can be naturally explained. Um, I, the two V shapes, I think, are a little bit odd. I, I'm not sure of a natural explanation for it, but um, I did. I was able to find that um, it's only. It seems to be only Jesus that has these. I, I wasn't able to find any. Well, there's a triangle type shape right there. And again, from your furled eyebrows, you can see tri a triangular shape. Now, I was only able to see one triangle on the Shroud of Turin Man, the Shroud Man, or on pictures of Jesus right at the base of the nose. So I'm not sure where the other triangle is, is coming from. Um, There's triangle, zoom in. I can see one triangle. I don't see another one unless the three-sided square is up here and then it's there's a triangle there so yeah I, I don't know that this is an established that these triangles really are an established feature um and it seems like the one at the base of the nose again can be naturally explained when you furl your brow or make that square shape uh with your brow type thing right um and here's uh, again the square with the triangle, but it's in the shape of a weird oval. But you can see that little triangle just naturally forms, kind of thing at the base of the nose. Um, so yeah, I, I I think that these V-shaped ones are the the best that we've got for an odd feature, but uh, we don't have enough to establish the link for both of them to the shroud in the first place, and. And the other, it can be explained away naturally, even if it is there. In terms of the raised right eyebrow, the extenuated left cheek, extenuated right cheek, uh, you know, pat bruises or bruised cheeks, swollen cheeks, accentuated cheeks, uh, it's sometimes presented as. So, uh, again, this is just easily naturally explained as trying to accentuate the, the cheeks kind of thing or... Uh, bags, in some cases, it shows bags under the eyes when you look at some of the Byzantine artwork. The enlarged left nostril, Hugh Ferry says this is um, just the way people look. Uh, I'm not sure about that. It, it is. This is a little bit weird, but again, this feature is shown on other people outside of Jesus. And even with Jesus, it's not always copying the shroud. Sometimes it's flipped. And so, you know, sometimes it's the right nostril, not the left nostril that's enlarged. And um, it just seems like, okay, they're just trying to draw a face. Faces aren't perfectly symmetrical. Um, the extenuated line between the nose and the upper lip. So that's number nine right here. So that's, you know, you've got this little, uh, uh, what, what is it called? Um, hang on one second. Filtrum, I think it's called. So hang on one second as I bring that up. Uh, I believe it's called the filtrum, 
it is called the philtrum. Yep, uh, there it is. So that vertical groove between the base of the nose and the border of the upper lip. That's something that's available on, on human beings naturally. And Hugh Ferry has presented uh, several images that aren't Jesus that have clearly have that uh, picture. So oh, there you go. You can make out that philtrum right there with the split mustache. Um, a heavy line under the lower lip. Yep. Yeah, uh, so hairless area between the lower lip and the beard. That's on... Uh, these guys that um, Hugh Ferry, uh, you can just see it right here, right? There's the hairless area. There's the hairless area. Um, so there's nothing remarkable about that. Forked beard. Um, well, again, Jesus, sometimes he's got different types of beards and stuff like that. So uh, that's just can be explained naturally. The, the owlish eyes is a weird one. But that, again, that's for all figures. Like, look at these guys, weirdo bul bulging eyeballs and stuff like that. That just seems culturally explained. That for that was their stylistic culture at that time. Uh, that seems like an equally probable explanation. Uh, and then finally, the two strands of hair, number 15. Uh, this is said to represent the epsilon wound on the shroud man. Uh, so if you take a look at the photo negative of the Shroud Man, that's this wound here. And they in, reinterpreted this wound, because obviously you don't want to draw Jesus with blood wounds coming out, as two strands of hair. Now, the Shroud skeptics and even pro-Shroud historian Mark Guskin automatically dismissed this. Look, this is just a, an all-out guess and everything like that. Uh, we have no proof that this is the that this is the case. Um, however, um, I will say this: um, I think there may be more to it than just that, and it comes from Dr. Giulio Fonte's statistical analysis of the uh, disheveled Jesus coin here. So you can see he's got the two the two um, things uh, strands of hair corresponding to the blood stain, the epsilon blood stain. Now, yeah, again, the pro shroud side bears the burden of proof here. Can we prove that this is just not just some desperate attempt to link the two? Well, I think there may be something with Dr. Giulio Fonte's work on this, the coin, because Giulio points out, look, there are these tufts of hair sticking out that look weird for the disheveled Jesus. Um, and he says they just happen to correspond, about 12 to 15 of them, marks happen to correspond to the bloodstains on the Shroud Man. So let's go over some, you know, so for example, there's the two things. It's the Epsilon, not a perfect match. I don't know. It's kind of iffy on its own. Then you've got the bruised right eyebrow. And you've got this little blood spot, as you can see. Uh, moving on. And then you've got this little blood spot down here as a tuft of hair. Uh, blood spot down here. And there's a, this hair seems to be elongated down there on the left side. It's another feature of Jesus' longer hair. This is the most convincing to me. I mean, this little tuft of hair it corresponds to the blood stain here. Although these are three dots. But this just looks weird. Why would you put this here? Uh, or this stands out to me as a tuft of hair. We're going to see that corresponds to a blood stain as well. 
Uh, you've got the blood stains down here and then the tuft of hair there. So I'm just going to keep going. Some of these are more convincing than others. Um, but yeah, and then here it is all together type thing. So here's what I wanted to say. So I think that Giulio Fonte, through this disheveled coin, and inter interpreting these bloodstains on the Shroud of Turin as tufts of hair on this uh, disheveled coin, and I've got to admit there are... Uh, there are at least some of these tufts, like this one, that really stand out as being weird uh, kind of thing. Um, so it, that does make me think it's plausible that, yeah, maybe the Byzantines did interpret the Shroud Man's bloodstains on around his head and reinterpret that as tufts of hair in the artist Byzantine art artwork. Now, that said, I don't have absolute proof for that. Obviously, proof for this would be contingent, um, you know, in order to meet my burden of proof on the pro shroud side and prove, yes, probably um, that's what happened. These artworks use these two strands of hair or the tufts of hair to represent blood stains on the shroud man. Uh, I would have to provide evidence and get into Julio's work on this coin and stuff like that. And for our purposes, I, I can't do that. I'm not going to get into that here. And therefore, I'm going to remain agnostic on this issue of the two strands for the Vinian marking type deal. Um, and I'm not, I, I can't prove on a balance of probabilities that it is. So basically going down all these features as best as I could, I looked at each one individually and including additional ones here that apply to coins but they don't apply to the art history, the artwork uh, necessarily, and they and they all failed. Um, there there was always non-Jesus figures that would have it, or it wasn't an established link. So let's look at one that's not established. For example, the transverse line across the throat, number thirteen, interpreted in artwork as the uh, Jesus uh, collar is seen along the neck. Um, now, take a look at this. So the problem here, this is not a feature that exists on the Shroud of Turin. Um, so here's a picture in Fairy's paper. Hang on. So, yeah, you can see with the transverse line across the throat, taking a look. Look, this is just the problem of photography. Here's Secondo Pia's photograph. Where is it? It's not across the bottom of the neck. But here it is with Henri's 1931 photo. There you can see it. And this is this is the photographic native that's famous that everybody sees uh, in terms of the Shroud of Turin when you do a Google search. You don't get to see these 1898 Secondo Pia one where the transverse line across the throat just isn't there. Uh, so I think this, this feature just doesn't exist. It's not even established on the Shroud Man uh, and therefore just has to be ignored. So... Yeah, that that basically covers everything in terms of the Vinian markings. I, I just have to admit it. It's seems like a failed argument. Um, there's maybe at most about three where three to four features where I'm like agnostic at best, where it's like, well, maybe with some extra work that can be established. But it seems like even with those, there are naturalistic explanations that do not require the use of the shroud or having seen the shroud to explain them. Uh, 
So yeah, so ultimately, I think the Vinyan markings, the specific argument that there are odd, about 15 to 17 odd features um, that prove the shroud was used to create the authoritative Byzantine artwork images, uh, that fails as an argument. Um, yeah, it, sorry, we can't meet our burden of proof. So it's 50% proven or less, which means we should ignore it from the calculation. And um, hold on, let me just find a picture to stay on. So one thing I wanted to say, these features are, are found in combination on other people, um, other people outside of Jesus. Uh, so you can see the cheeks, the square, the lines, um, owlish eyes, uh, skin in between, uh, and then the little uh, filtrum there. So yeah, th there are lots of photos that have various features combined of these Vinian things. The split mustaches, the filtrum, the supranasal square, the super, the um, eccentric marks on the cheeks or even the forehead, and the clear marks in the chin. So it it doesn't seem there's nothing unique about Jesus. So I would say it's definitely definitely been falsified that the shroud of Turin was seen as the authoritative image for Jesus alone. Um, instead, we have to argue for Paul Vinyan's hypothesis that. Well, when the shroud was discovered as the image of Edessa in the early 550s or 540s, um, it became the authoritative image for everybody, for just how the Byzantines drew faces in general. Um, and then once you get into that, the problem is going to be, well, Hugh points out in his article and shows various things where, yeah, but there are clear differences. There are people that don't exhibit all or even any of these uh, photos, including pictures of Jesus. For example, Jesus here doesn't show any of the, there's no supranasal square or anything like that. He does have accentuated cheeks, but um, the, the, the point is that there are important differences that also come up in, in these artworks, and these all have to be explained away uh, and they are explained away in very ad hoc ways or ways that I find don't really make any sense, to be honest. So, um, or at the very, yeah, at the very least, they sound very, very ad hoc. You know, they're just made up for the purpose of saving it, like trying to twist and twist things in order to say, well, yeah, sure, he saw the shroud, but he wanted to portray it differently for one reason or another. Um, so yeah, in the light of all things considered, like I said, it we fail, the pro shroud side fails to meet their burden of proof with the Vinian markings, I'm no longer going to be using this as a pro shroud argument. Um, now, that said, in terms of general conclusions about Byzantine art and uh, the Christ Pantocrator image, we still, so number one, yes, um, if the shroud did do anything to change things, we still have this historical mystery, right? Where prior to the sixth century, mid sixth century, uh, Jesus was portrayed in a bunch of different ways. But then in the 6th century, something happened. They started standardizing it into the traditional Christ Pantocrator or Jesus image that we know and love today and understand today. What was that? Um, was it another piece of art that was authoritative? Hugh, Hugh Ferries made some suggestions. Sounds equally probable to me. 
Um, or was that the Shroud of Turin? That's equally probable too. Maybe the Shroud of Turin did become not the, but a authoritative source or an important source. And it influenced at least some artists, but not all um, at various times and stuff like that. So I, I don't think we can prove one way or the other. Maybe the Shroud did play a role with some of these features in the Byzantine art, but maybe it didn't. They can be explained away. And again, it's on the pro-Shroud side. We solely have the burden of proof to when we're advancing this rebutting defeater. Because again, remember how it goes. Shroud Skeptic says the Shroud is probably medieval. Um, and then we're coming back and saying, no, it's not. We have a rebutting defeater. It's probably not medieval. Premise two is probably false because the Vinian markings argument. And Hugh is present as presented, I think, a successful defeater defeater for our rebutting defeater there. And therefore, I think we should retract it. Now, does that mean because I'm no longer advancing this as a positive claim that it's false? No, I, I don't think we have proof that uh, the Vinian markings argument is totally false. It, it is in terms of some of the nuanced points, like I said. Uh, like, for example, it's not the authoritative source and it's not for Jesus only. Obviously, these feature vineyard markings go elsewhere. And I do think that there is something to say about the, the hypothesis that the shroud played a role in standardizing the traditional look of Jesus that was used in Byzantine art in subsequent centuries. Um, that seems very plausible to me. Um, and perhaps it played a role in, in influencing a, another piece of art that became uh, an important piece for other artists and stuff like that. Um, so, hang on one second. Let me... Sorry about that. Yeah, so there, there was one last point I wanted to make. I, I still do agree with Joe Marino, even though I don't think I can meet a burden of proof or make a positive claim. I do think that the argument from art history, Byzantine art history, is suggestive. Um, even if we can't prove it, there's something there. And this is why Byzantine art historians and some of the world's experts who aren't even Christians um, are starting to go, yup, there's something to this. Um, including uh, one of the best, most detailed books written by a non-religious agnostic. Uh, what was that again that Matt Dillahunty said about um, uh, about only Bible-believing Christians believe in the Shroud. Let, let me see if I can find that little clip just to, to laugh at here. Anyway, sorry about that. I wasn't able to find the clip that I was looking for. But um, yeah, you know, you, you have fundamentally skeptics on the internet foolishly and ignorantly saying that only Bible-believing Christians believe the Shroud is authentic and only they would find the art history argument convincing. Well, like I said, the non-religious agnostic and world's expert in medieval art and Byzantine art, Dr. Thomas de, West, de Westlow, uh, he disagrees with you, Fundy Lay Skeptics. He says it's impossible for it to be a medieval piece of art. It's not like it at all. And he also argues in his book that it does, that the Shroud must have played some kind of role uh, in influencing Byzantine iconography. Uh, in terms of how they depicted Jesus's face um, and possibly even other figures in Byzantine art as well. Anyway, so I'm just going to go over and play this little clip, short five-minute clip from Thomas de Westlow, the medieval art historian and world's expert, 
who is not a Christian, uh, but an agnostic. And um, just like John Loken, he's he's going to be saying, you're a fool if you believe this is a medieval artwork. Uh, so let's listen to that. Resurrection. This is Thomas Wesselot. Thank you. Thank you very much, Moses. Hi, everyone. Um, well, the reason I'm here today is that I've just written a book um, about the origin of Christianity. Now, I'm an art historian, as Moses said. It's a bit of an odd topic for me to choose, a bit of an odd career move, as he says. Here's something else that I think historians should start thinking about a bit more, the Shroud of Turin. It's a long linen cloth, about 14 foot long, um, and it bears in the center this very, very strange, very faint double image, front and back, of a crucified man. Ignore the, um, these burn marks up at the top, the, the parallel lines, top and bottom. They're later burn marks, they're not important. What matters is this mysterious double image in the center of the cloth. Now, this is thought by many people to be the actual burial cloth of Jesus. But let's be honest, it's generally regarded as a very kooky subject, the shroud. Some of you in the audience may have already decided that I'm a complete kook just for raising the topic and saying that we need to think about it seriously. I'd have probably called myself a kook eight years ago before I started working on it. And the reason for this is very simple. A carbon dating test was performed on cloth taken from the shroud um, in 1988. And the results of that test indicated that the cloth dates from around about the 14th century. Now, for most people, that's enough just to write it off as a fake, a certified fake. As one of the carbon dating scientists said, someone just got a piece of cloth, they faked it up, and they flogged it, and anyone who thinks otherwise is just a flat earther. Now, I'm not a flat earther, <laughs> believe it or not, and I'm not even a Christian. I'd actually say I was an agnostic if I was pressed. Um, but I think that the, the glib dismissal of the shroud as a medieval fake is just not clever. Um, it's an evasion, not an explanation. It seems like a modern, rational attitude to have, but it's not. As an art historian, I study imagery from the 13th and 14th century, like the picture you see on the right. Now, if the shroud is a medieval image, dating from around this period, art historians like me ought to be able to look at it and study it and tell you who painted it, how they painted it, where it was painted, and so on. But we can't. And the reason is that it's not like any medieval image. It's amazingly realistic, like a photo. Now, this would have been completely beyond anyone painting in the 14th century. I show you on the left, on the right, sorry, this wonderful painting by Simone Martini. It's an artist I've studied. And it shows you how people were painting the face of Christ in the 14th century. 
Now, it's very obviously stylized. You can see the brush strokes, you can see the outlines. Unlike the shroud image, which is basically just like a modern photo. And no one in the Middle Ages would have wasted their time, even if they could have done, producing an image like you see on the left that you could only appreciate if you photographed it, and then you could see the true quality of the image, the amazing figure in the middle. So, in my view, it just doesn't make sense as a medieval image. There's another reason as well, and that's that the image is vanishingly faint. It's so faint that if you get closer than about six feet away, it melts into the cloth. You can't actually see it. So no one could have produced an image that they couldn't even see when they were making it. From an art historian's point of view, there's another reason to doubt that this could be a medieval work of art. If you wanted to fake a holy shroud in the Middle Ages, you didn't need to create a forgery so brilliant that scholars like me and scientists working in the 21st century would be fooled by it. All you needed, all you needed to do was to paint one. And what I've got on, on the right of the screen there is the Holy Shroud of Besançon. It's an, actually an accurate copy of it because it was destroyed in the French Revolution. Now, this was very obviously just a medieval painting. You can see how stylized it is. But until it was destroyed, this shroud was thought to be an authentic relic of Christ's burial. This image was thought to be a miraculous imprint. So you didn't need to forge the perfect forgery in, in the Middle Ages. People were gullible in those days, especially when it came to religious relics. In short, the idea that the shroud is a medieval work of art is simply untenable. It doesn't look like a medieval work of art. It's not made like one. And it's certainly not conceived like one. And that's why art historians like me, or not like me actually, have completely ignored the, the Shroud of Turin um, over the course of the last century. It just doesn't fit into the history of art. Okay, so one thing I just want to make clear, just to finish off, now that we've seen that video, um, in terms of the Vinyan markings and the Byzantine art history argument, I've said it's 50% or less proven, meaning we have to remain agnostic and ignore this from the calculation. Now, in this case, because I haven't read works by like doc, uh, Dr. Thomas Dweslow there, I would not say my not, the basis for my opinion is a sufficient basis, and therefore I don't. I'm not making a warranted judgment. I'm just providing you my rational justification. I have appropriate reasons on the basis of, uh, you know, the books that I've read, the books that I have read from Ian Wilson, or or the papers by Hugh Ferry, uh, or listening to what the experts on my Shroud Panel Review Show Part Two have said about this argument. Um, and, you know, watching some videos and that sort of thing. Um, it's still an inadequate basis. I, I would want some more information before I would feel comfortable saying, yeah, I'm warranted in dismissing the, the Byzantine art history argument uh, in general, the, the version that Dueslo gives, perhaps. Um, and even in some cases, there are th about three to four Vinyan markings, like those owlish eyes or the, um, the triangles, for example, that... I wouldn't say I'm warranted in dismissing at this time. The, the other stuff I am, definitely, the, the square, some of the other stuff I think Hugh has given conclusive proof, and it's warranted. I've seen it with my own eyes that I can dismiss those aspects. But in terms of the argument as a whole, there are still some things that I would want to work out. 
And therefore, my judgment here is just a rationally justified judgment, not a warranted one, I would say. Okay, so let's move on to the second line of evidence. As you're seeing up on your YouTube screens, this is Alan Wanger's use of the polarized image overlay technique, where he used this technique to look at various Byzantine paintings and numismatic coins dating from this period, mid-6th century up to 1204, and he found various points of congruence or points of comparison. This is smaller than just the, just you know, like the the Vinyan markings, the odd features which are macroscopic. The, these are forensic points of comparison. And Alan Wenger uh, lacked a statistical method, so he used forensic criteria to say, well, the shroud and these images are the same face, so they must have been using the shroud of Turin to paint these features or to make these coins. And even uh, Giulio Fonte uh, references Alan Wenger's work. Um, and when he was on my show in part uh, panel review show part 3B, he says, quote unquote, in support of my, Giulio Fonte's, probabilistic result obtained, there are also more than a hundred points of congruence or comparison de determined by the scholars Alan and Mary Wenger on similar coins and the studies of the pneumatist M. Uh, Mario Moroni as well, uh, who I didn't mention in my previous uh, panel shows or on my Shroud Solo Show Part 2. Uh, so even Julio saying, well, this is supporting evidence uh, type deal that supports his own findings. And he's right. Alan Wenger used this polarized image overlay technique and he found there is, for example, in forensics for um, monotypic images like fingerprints, unique to the individual. Only one person has these. Fingerprints, DNA, stuff like that. With I found forensic papers saying even with just 10 points of congruence or comparison, that proves it's the same person. It's the same fingerprint. Uh, and So that was even smaller than what Alan Wanger said back in the 90s, where I think he said it was about 15 to 20 or something like that, points of comparison for monotypic images. Now, I do have to admit this argument, Alan Wenger's argument here, is an utter failure in terms of the pro-shroud expert providing a rebutting defeater to premise two. Remember premise two, the shroud is probably medieval. Um, and I'm saying, no, it's not. As a matter of fact, it's not. We have a rebutting defeater. Look, Alan Wenger's points of comparison. And he found that they had, for polytypic images, according to Alan Wenger, with 40 to 60 points of comparison, that's enough to say same peeps, they're the same. The, the guy who made these coins or paintings copied the Shroud of Turin, or vice versa, um, based on these forensic criteria, and Alan got results well above that, well above 100 points. I think the highest he found on one of the items he looked at was, over, was about 200 points of congruence or comparison. Um, so he fulfilled these forensic criteria. Now, in my own research, I have not been able to confirm that this is for polytypic images like face faces. Um, this is not how they do things, and I couldn't find any sources. Now, I consulted with Barry Schwartz. He's he's also skeptical of this and says it doesn't work as an argument. Um, but he knows Alan and he knew Alan and Mary Wanger uh, personally, and he says, "Look, you would not just make this up or lie." So. Therefore, I do. I truly believe that Alan Wenger got these forensic criteria from somewhere, a, a expert source, um, 
and that's and so to speak. So I, I trust that he's being truthful there. However, it's still not good enough though, because in modern research, face recognition is a is a becoming an increasingly more uh, refined science, and we're working with computers to to analyze it now. And I've never seen any cutoff, you know, points of congruence. Uh, in fact, most all of the peer review papers I looked at in forensics speak about the holistic approach to face facial recognition and linking a face to another kind of thing, a photo of a face to a face you're looking at or to a face, a another photo of a face. And everything's important, not just points of congruence, but or features, um, but also even things like the, the spaces between features are all taken into consideration to say, yes, these data points say this is the same person. And Alan Wanger's work with the polarized image overlay just didn't get into these kinds of details, and you need to. So I think this is probably a failure. It's a failed argument right there. But it gets even worse for Alan Wanger because, look, this holistic forensic comparison approach assumes that we're dealing with real photos or photos of real pictures. With the Shroud of Turin uh, and Byzantine paintings or coins, we're looking at artistic images, not photos. And therefore, the facial recognition or forensic criteria used to link faces just doesn't really apply here in terms of these points of congruence or spaces between features. No, we would expect them to be all out of whack because artistic license. And it's just impossible for one human being to exactly duplicate every feature and space between features directly proportional and stuff like that. Uh, in fact, I'm kind of amazed that Giulio Fonte found there's the ratio between the eyes and the nose happens to be similar to what we see with the Shroud of Turin. But even still, it's not exact. It's not like every single coin copying the Shroud got it at the ratio exactly the same as what the Shrouds is. That's impossible. Um, I'm, I'm amazed he even found one that was even relatively close to it and let alone one that was 1.28 ratio there um so uh, yeah so in that on that front the alan wanger thing i'm warranted in dismissing this evidence and guess what I, it's not just that i'm agnostic it's not 50 percent or less it is less uh so it, it is less than 50 percent it is well sorry in bayesian terms it is 50 percent or less uh proven uh, in terms of proving the shroud was used for this. So it's a failure as an argument. It's it's probably false. Um, now that said, I quoted Giulio Fonte, who does mention um, Alan Wanger's work with the polarized image overlay technique. And I agree with Giulio that his work can be used as supporting evidence. He did use this technology and found various forensic points of comparison. Uh, that's empirical data that you can't just dismiss and should be used and followed up on. Uh, do other people find the same thing, same thing, or was it subjective? How did he use it? Let's let's get it. Let let's retest it, and perhaps these data points can be used uh, by people like Dr. Giulio Fonte to um, assign probabilities or further work can be done. So I'm not dismissing Alan Wanger's discovery or empirical findings that they're he did find these forensic points of comparison between the shroud and these paintings and coins. It's just the interpretation of this after the fact. 
Uh, I don't think we can say, well, that proves they must have been correlated or linked in any kind of way. We, we just, there, we lack the forensic, we failed on terms of the forensic criteria to do that, um, uh, that we have. So, yeah, that's my take on the Alan Wanger thing. So let's move on to the uh, Dr. Julio Fonte and his probabilistic or statistical analysis of the coins proving beyond all reasonable doubt, 99.9999999 million times percent, um, that the Justinian II coins from 692 to 695, those gold solidus coins, absolutely, at least for some of the engravers, the Shroud of Turin, they had to use it, proven beyond all reasonable doubt. Um, okay, so what's my assessment on that? Okay, so moving on to... Dr. Giulio Fonte's, my third line of evidence, Giulio Fonte's statistical or probabilistic argument from the Justinian coins from 692 to 695. And he assesses one coin on the basis of 12 features, uh, as well the defaced faced Jesus based on the wounds that I was showing before. Uh, and then he looks at 18 coins and gets the ratios to be 1.28 and shows some of them must have copied the shroud because they're very odd, oddly the same. Um, now, in terms of my overall assessment on this front, so I was lucky enough to have Giulio Fonte on to address uh, some of the problems that came up in my shroud panel review show part two with Hugh Ferry and Mark Guskin and Bob Rucker. They were all seemed to be kind of hesitant to accept this or even skeptical uh, that it's that it works. And thankfully, Giulio Fonte came on and gave detailed answers in my Shroud Panel Review Show, Part 3B, responding to this in detail and how his probabilistic method worked. And I found that I had doubts after the first show, but listening to Giulio, his sound answers really were satisfying and made put my confidence back into his statistical argument. Um, I always suspected that there is something to this one, and I still feel that way. Um, however, here's going to be the disappointing part for you. So I, I will be assigning a 50% proven, not 50% or less, but 50% just for me personally, again, as a rationally justified thing. And again, I, I just have to be honest here. I was reading over Julio's answers, and they are amazing and everything, but he, rent, he mentions... In, Look, it, he doesn't have an objective statistical basis for these probabilities. He is assigning subjective probability values as well as subjectively based uncertainty values to test his model uh, from the first time to the second time. Now, the good news is uh, Julio Fonte has encouraged me in saying that, look, he, he selected in the second round, he tested his model to see if it could be falsified or not, and it came out verified. And that sort of thing and he included within that very wide uncertainty values to cover all the angles kind of thing so uh julio fonte saying we ha he has a very high uh confidence in his results that there's one chance in 10 billion billion that that person didn't see the shroud when he made that justinian coin that he assessed uh based on the features um so julio fonte has engaged in some measure of falsification, despite the fact that he's only assigning subjective probability values. You know, for example, he said, 
for one of the features, he says, oh, I assigned a one out of 50 chance that the person would make that if they had not seen the shroud. One out of 50, where do you get that from? It's from Julio's head. He made it up. It's a subjective value. It's, it's just him kind of guesstimating, well, that sounds about right, doesn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm being very generous. It's probably even more improbable than that um, when you get into other features. And, you know, Julio also uh, fully affirmed uh, the issues regarding the probabilistic resources that um, in some way he was taking account of that in terms of his uncertainties and he was saying that in terms of specificational resources these things wouldn't make much of a difference uh, so he did ignore those from his calculations um, but even if he included the you know things like the ears being there or not being there and stuff like that you know different specifications right uh, it's not going to make that much of a difference. And that's why from the first test he did, which is what we talked about, and then his second book deals with his second experiment dealing with not all the same features. So it deal, dealt with some other specified patterns between the shroud and these coins and stuff like that. So he has done some measure of testing uh, these parameters and that sort of thing to overcome the the problems about the subjective probability part um and i i was uh satisfied more or less with his answers for what it was um however i i will still say this and i, I always say say this to some people like listening to one show is not a war does not give you a warranted judgment um and I'll be honest here, I have not read Julio's second book. And because of that, everything I've read is based on his original original work. And the answers to these questions can't come up in Julio's second book that he told us about, where he was really doing this second experiment, this other experiment, testing out the probabilities and assigning those uncertainty values. So until I've read Julio's book, I do not feel that I have the a warranted opinion to judge. Um, but just by way of rational justification and going by the panel shows and listening to reading fully Julio's answers here, I'm encouraged by it. I, I do think it's going to work. I think this one will be proven more probable than not um, in favor of the pro shroud side that Therefore, that would prove that the shroud dates from to 692 to 695 AD at the latest, in fact, or earlier, like the time of Jesus in the first century. Um, so I think that this is a, a successful one, um, but I'm just assigning 50% for the time being um, because I don't think I'm warranted. I, I really need, I really want to read Julio's second book that he talked about and just get a little bit more details. I don't want to base my judgment just off one show, even though I, I was satisfied with how Julio answered um, the questions that I raised on that show. Um, I don't think anyone, pro Shroud or Shroud Skeptic, should just watch one show, even if it's my show, and, and on that base, oh, okay, it's it's all solved. No, you, you got to do a little bit better due diligence than that if you want to be warranted. Um, right? So, you know, Shroud skeptics, I scold them when they read a CNN paper and stupidly say, oh, the Shroud's a fake. I know it. Or they, they hear a, a, a newspaper headline. They don't even read a article. They read a newspaper headline. Shroud of Turin a fake because of the 2018 BPA analysis. And they go on spouting this. That is unwarranted. That is foolish. 
foolish not as an insult, but in meaning the biblical definition, lacking discernment. And as good as my, I believe my shows are, um, I hope uh, it looks like you guys agree as well, but I, I really do try to deliver some depth in, of the substantive material there. One show is not is not enough. Um, I, I do I want to read uh, some more about Julia's work, um, and I, I haven't been able to read anything about his second book. The the more up to date uh, calculations and, and methods that he's used with regards to these coins, and because of that, I'm at a deficiency. So um, yeah, I'm just gonna say it's it's fifty percent, and therefore ignored from our calculations for now. But uh, I strongly suspect, in terms of rational justification, uh, once I've done my due diligence and look into this matter for my third round of investigation, um, I would place bets or, pre or predict that it's going to be more probable than not. I think this argument is going to be successful on a balance of probabilities that proving the shroud is probably not medieval. Um, but I just have no right... Uh, to say that at this point in terms of a, a warranted judgment simply because I I don't have a sufficient amount of materials at, at my disposal to make that judgment. So that's it for that. Um, well, yeah, just a couple other add-ons quickly. So another thing that was mentioned in the Shroud panel show is a, another paper by Dr. Giulio Fonte based upon the gold flex. Um, so this was in my Shroud panel review part 3A. Bob Rucker mentioned the gold flex can date come from Byzantine coins dated 1200 AD or earlier, and they have a unique metal concentration because it's not just gold. There's uh, always like um, an alloy or mixture. So there's a certain percentage of silver and a certain percentage of another metal, and this unique concentration is found in flecks on the shroud, just happens to correspond to Byzantine coins. Um, and Hugh, Hugh, the shroud skeptic Hugh Ferry responded to that saying, Oh, but uh, they have gold all around the Vatican, and there's gold is always a mixture of different metals, stuff like that. So, of course, you're going to just luck out and find something that has the same percentages. Um, I have no judgment on, on that um, kind of thing. I don't, I don't know if that is true. Um, Giulio Fonte, I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't read this paper. Giulio Fonte seems to be saying, no, that it's a unique concentration of these three different metals um and therefore we can say it's got to be the coins but the th the question i had is like okay let's say yeah only the coins have this concentration so therefore the the gold flex on the shroud could only have come from these byzantine coins that date from the day year 1200 ad or earlier um well couldn't byzantine coins have come into contact with the shroud somehow and, and throughout its history at some point um is this really a, a data point i don't know i don't know like um i just need more details and i haven't read his paper so i can't respond but i you know i'm thinking about like well during the fourth crusade did they steal some byzantine coins and take it with them to europe and maybe it, it came into contact at that point um through someone's treasure trove it doesn't necessarily have to be that they came into contact in Constantinople when they were issued or circulating or something like that. Um, yeah, so I would just need to evaluate that. One thing that I totally forgot in my assessment part one of four here in the summary show, regarding Bob Rucker's rebutting defeater of the 1988 carbon-14 dating, 
Um, he does, I forgot to mention one of the evidence beyond the slope and the range and its implicit prediction to the sudarium of Oviedo date, carbon dating to 780. Uh, there's also Giulio Fonte's work, his paper, peer review paper on my blog, talking about how the blood um, suggests that there was a neutron flux that took place. And this is also confirmatory for Bob using that as part of his meeting his burden of proof and proving that, look, the carbon dating provides us not with just with a undercutting defeater, but we have a rebutting defeater because there probably was a neutron flux um, given Giulio Fonte's assessment of nitrogen in the blood and stuff like that. Uh, so that paper's on my blog. Um, look into that, um, stuff like that. Like I said, for, for me personally, I don't try to adopt the burden of proof when looking at the carbon dating, so I don't offer rebutting defeaters. And therefore, I, I, Julio Fonte's paper is interesting, but I didn't want to go into the details. It's enough to just present the undercutting defeater and undercut the epistemic warrant that the Shroud skeptic has for believing the carbon-14 is reflective of the actual calendar age of the Shroud of Turin. Okay, uh, so that's it on that part. Um, yeah, moving on to the next topic segment, the Sudarium of Oviedo. All right, hello, and welcome back to uh, Real Seekers. Uh, uh, this is the new show, so I'm continuing on uh, with my uh, Shroud Panel Review Summary Show, part three of four. And um, basically, we're looking at the next topic segment, the Sudarium of Oviedo, the uh, strongest bit of evidence that I said back in 2018, I said it was proven beyond reasonable doubt. Uh, so there is, has been a major update uh, since then, and I've changed changed my mind, um, and we'll see what how I assess that. But before I do, just want to show a quick little clip here uh, from uh, Mark Guskin, the Studarium expert who I had on Shroud Panel Review Show part two this is from a bbc documentary and this is what i uh one of my sources back in 2018 uh kind of just describing the sidereum evidence so hang on one second all right perfect so let me bring up that video for you peeps all right uh and let's listen in after all, tradition claims that the Shroud of Turin is nothing less than the burial cloth of Christ. Even the 12th century is still 1,100 years after the death of Jesus. But pressure on the reliability of the carbon-14 test has continued to build, with new forensic evidence that places the Shroud yet further back in time. It is something known as the Sudarium of Oviedo in Spain. It is reputed to be the face cloth mentioned in the Gospel of John. John says that the disciples entered the tomb of Jesus on the third day after his death, only to find it empty, apart from the burial cloth and the face cloth. We also know from official records in Oviedo that the Sudarium can be accurately dated to the 5th century AD. Invited to Turin, Mark Duskin, an expert on the Sudarium of Oviedo in Spain. His evidence could push the date of the Turin Shroud back another 700 years to the 5th century. This is an identical copy of the Sudarium. Its purpose was to trap blood escaping from the corpse as it was taken away for burial. 
Guskin believes he's identified significant evidence linking the Sundarium to the Shroud of Turin. Guskin already knew that the Shroud has real blood. It belongs to the rare group AB. There are also traces of blood shed in life and blood shed in death. And finally, there are the unmistakable traces of blood from a crown of thorns on the front of the head and the back. Guskin believes all three blood features can be found on the Sudarium. The first is the blood group, okay, which is a relatively rare blood group on the planet. It's the uh, blood group AB, okay, and it's the same blood group of human blood on both cloths. Then there's also the differentiation between lifeblood, in other words, blood shed in life, and post-mortem blood, which can be clearly differentiated. And again, that coincides on both cloths. And that brings us to what, for me, uh, clinches the whole matter of the cloths being used on the same body. Now, this was bloodshed in life, okay, while the, while the man in question was still alive. Now, this blood comes from wounds that were made by some kind of sharp object piercing the skin in this area of, of the of the nape of the neck okay perfectly compatible with what has been called since then a crown of thorns okay now if we look at this we have exactly the same stains yeah. in the same area on the shroud of turin now the actual shape of the stains if you do an overlay of of the two well the actual shape now, the way the blood flowed coincides on both cloths. So what you're saying is not only the blood types that are the same, the actual patterns of, of, of the blood on both cloths are, can be matched. That's right. That's exactly so, which has led uh, more than one uh, forensic qualified forensic doctor to say that the only conclusion you can make from that is that both cloths were used on the same body. In other words, this is too much for a simple coincidence. So let me understand, what you're saying is that the fact that we know exactly what happened to the Sudarium and its history has huge implications for the Shroud, because obviously they both covered the same man. That's right. And the only place that they could have coincided in, in both in, in time was in Jerusalem, sometime before the 4th or the 5th century. You know, there's no two ways about that. They couldn't have coincided at any given time after that. Because we know what happened. Exactly where the Sudarium was all the time. These very distinctive wounds on the back of the head on the shroud link it to the Sudarium in Jerusalem before 500 AD. All right, so there you guys go. Um, stop sharing. So that was a, a clip from a great 2010 BBC documentary on the Shroud of Turin, uh, linking it to the Sudarium of Oviedo, Oviedo with Mark Guskin, who was on my Shroud panel review show part two there. And... Um, uh, so what's my assessment of this object and this evidence after having gone through the panel reviews? As I said, back in 2018, I said on the show that it was proven beyond reasonable doubt. I've changed my mind. I was wrong. Um, I Going based on things like the documentary and the evidence that I had at the time uh, and listening to shroud experts and stuff like that, obviously I hadn't done my due diligence and uh, it's a lot more nuanced than it. I thought so. For example, the blood stains that match up aren't precise fits. Number one, they're they're in the same relative position, so you have to manipulate them, move them, because they're two different cloths on the body at different times and stuff like that, and the body's in different positions. So um, there are there is some nuance to this argument. Um, 
And in addition, as when I get to the other board scenes, there are other issues here. So I've gone down quite a bit. Uh, the question is, do I still think that this is a good rebutting defeater for the pro-Shroud experts to raise against the truth of premise two in that Shroud skeptical argument? Remember, premise two is that Shroud skeptic claims the Shroud is probably medieval. We're saying, guess what? As a matter of fact, no, it's not, because we have a rebutting defeater proving it's not medieval. The, it's linked to the Sidarium of Oviedo. It dates uh, to the 500, 570 AD or earlier. I believe the historical case is pretty solid on that front. And again, that was Mark Buskin's uh, expertise there. And I uh, agree with him. Uh, it's been carbon dated to 700 AD. So it, it is provably not medieval if the Sudarium and the Shroud of Train covered the same guy. So that's really where the debate is. That's where my assessment is going to be. Did it cover the same peak um, or not? Um, so yeah, getting into my assessment then. So I broke this up into various factors. Obviously, I had uh, Dr. Caesar Barda, another world's expert in the Sudarium Oviedo in Spain. And um, he's approached the Sudarium scientifically and proven that they are linked in various ways. So in the first place, um, here are some of the, the things. So one of the um, things that we have is that, oh, well, both the Shroud of Turin and the Sidarium of Oviedo have bloodstains that are both of a very extremely rare blood group or type, the AB type. Um, and this absolutely proves it must have been Jesus. No, uh, the, it's, it proves it would have been the same person or very, very unlikely to have been different people because this AB blood type is so rare. Now, unfortunately, this is a 50% or less proven thing because, uh, number one, I had Dr. Kelly Kearse on my show, and I think he's kind of conclusively proven, disproven or defeated the claim that the Shroud of Trans bloodstains are of the AB blood type. And even if they did were that, there is debate about whether over the centuries it becomes degraded to the point where it becomes AB, even though it wasn't that originally. And the same would apply with the sidereum. So it's, um, I, I don't think we have proof. We The pro side can't meet our burden of proof to establish this leg. But let me just find a quick, uh, quick little clip of Dr. Kelly Curious when he was on my show, speaking about the AB blood type here. All right, so uh, I just find out I recorded about an hour and a half's worth on the sedarium, uh, or an hour on the, a little over an hour on the sedarium of Oviedo. And guess what? Uh, Zoom didn't record the stupid thing. It didn't work. Emotional damage. Uh, there was, I was recording during it, but there was a glitch and I lost all that work. So I have to go and redo it. Um, I'm obviously put a lot of effort into it. I'm not going to do everything I did I had you know clips that I was showing or certain photos and stuff so just to save time I don't have time to redo everything again so I'm just going to quickly go over my assessment of the Sudarium of Oviedo um, so I, basically back in 2018 I said that I was proven beyond all reasonable doubt that the Sudarium and the Shroud of Turin covered the same corpse or the head of the same corpse that's that's been false falsified uh the reason for that is i was operating under the false assumption that at least some of the blood stains were exact or precise matches on these uh with the sudarium 
And obviously, since we know the Sudarium's history dating back to 570 AD or earlier in Jerusalem, uh, obviously this proves that the Shroud is not medieval. Premise two of the Shroud skeptics argument that the Shroud is probably medieval is false. We have a successful rebutting defeater there. Um, okay, so my apologies again. I, I had I showed images, pictures, uh, certain papers and video clips and stuff like that. That's all gone. Uh, and I'm I'm not going to go through it again. Um, for this summary, I, I think I've covered the Sedarium of Oviedo. You can go to my past shows with Dr. Cesar Varda and uh, the Shroud Panel Review Show Part 2 with Mark Guskin, who's an expert in the Sedarium. Um, and he was there with Hugh Ferry and Bob Rucker and Joe Marino. And you can get it from that. So uh, sorry about that. Um, yeah. Uh, what's So what's my assessment then? So just quickly going over it. Um, there are various aspects that I looked at. So the first one was about the the blood type being um, AB kind of thing, right? And um, I said that this actually is 50% proven or less. It fails as an argument, in my opinion. And the reason for this is because, number one, Dr. Kelly Kears has proven we can't prove that the shroud uh, blood type is this rare AB let alone with the sterium, a lot of forensic experts say that over the centuries, the blood degrades and becomes AB, even though that isn't really the original blood type that they have. Uh, secondly, there are commonalities. Well, it's been proven the sterium and the shroud both covered, covered a man with long hair in a ponytail and a mustache and long beard. Um, okay, great, grand, and groovy. Cool. That, that describes... Uh, possibly thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people uh, throughout human history um, and that sort of thing. So this is 50% are proven, 50% uh, or less proven that, yeah, based on these features, which are true and established for sure, uh, that proves that somehow the Shroud of Turin and the Sedarium covered the same corpse. No, we that's a failure as an argument. That proves nothing, in my opinion. It, there could have been lots of people, one with long hair and beard and ponytail in the shroud and another guy with the same in the sedarium. Um, now, one thing I, I did mention, um, these were failures, 50% have proven less, but um, a pro shroud ex sudarium expert in one of his articles and papers, and again, I, I showed this, he mentioned that there was two coincidences. Oh, this is Cesar Barta, actually, and, and he said, there are two coincidences that happen. So the, the first um, is that it, it explains why is the Shroud Man's ponytail intact and not tattered or something like that. And it's because the blood soaked it, became encrusted, and the hair was frozen like that due to the sudarium. If we posit the sudarium uh, covering him and then pinned with bone pins to the back of his ponytail, oh, so it, it, it kept that shape and then be, the blood became encrusted, and when they put the shroud on, it was stuck in that that solid shape on the sides of the head for the hair and the, the ponytail. So that explains it. But again, that proves nothing. It's fifty percent proven or nothing or less, in my opinion. That doesn't prove that the sudarium covered the shroud. Maybe the shroud man had a sudarium. So this explanation explains that feature on the shroud man there in terms of his hair and ponytail. But it just wasn't the Sudarium of Oviedo. It was another Sudarium that would cover him and did it. So there is no provable link there. I think that fails. But 
It is interesting because it fulfill the sidereum fulfills the criterion of illumination. It illuminates for us that you know why is the shroud man's hair weird? There is that weird uh, counter feature that uh, some shroud skeptics use against the shroud. And from the Sudarian evidence, we can kind of say, oh, well, maybe this is a plausible situation as to why it's it's like that. The second one is that um, in the Sudarium, there are a couple of blood stains that aren't present on the Shroud Man. Uh, instead, uh, those are scourge wounds on the Shroud of Trin. So the blood stains are invisible. Um, and the, they're saying that the, oh, well, this makes sense. The, Sudarium illuminates, kind of, uh, or vice versa. I'm, I'm forgetting off the top of my head. And this provides illumination again that the class covered the same person. Um, obviously, you need to explain well, why why is it invisible on one cloth and not the other uh, in terms of these blood stains. And Dr. Cesarbarda has a plausible explanation, but it's not a provable one. It's just spec plausible speculations as to what happened. Because of this, again, it proved we have no proof that the shroud and the Sudarium covered the same. Corpse is just an interesting and illuminating uh, fact uh, or corresponding type fact, bloodstains to scourge wounds or something. Um, okay, so next feature, Proshrad. This one, um, oh shoot, so I had a whole list. But basically it's, they can calculate from the body fluids that the Shroud has, Shroud Man has the same chin size, same beard size, roughly uh same nose size it's about 2200 millimeters on the sidereum and 2000 millimeters on the shroud in terms of the, the millimeters squared for the nose area uh the the mush is the same the mouth um is the same uh size and that sort of thing um so this is incredible evidence and i assigned a successful thing to this right and i think this does prove probably that they covered this both cloths covered the same corpse. And obviously they're not exact 2200 versus 2000. Yeah, because there are differences in the how the blood, the body fluids got on the cloth, the position of the cloth at the time the blood stains were formed, right? They didn't cover the body at the same time, the position of the body at the time these blood stains were forming. And that's why there are small minor differences. But nonetheless, many dozens of forensic experts have examined this and said, yep, that's the same peep based on these calculations. Uh, and they've even attested, uh, we would attest to this and there wouldn't be a court of law or justice in the land who wouldn't convict people and say, yup, on the basis of this evidence, absolutely proven beyond reasonable doubt, they covered the same person. Um, no, obviously I, I'm not, I said I'm not that strong because there are shroud skeptical counters. Um, to this, there are forensic experts who disagree and say this is not good proof. It's a, say that this is not good proof and, and that sort of thing. And that it is possible because there are these differences in there that maybe they didn't cover the same corpse. So I assigned a 65% proven for this feature. The fact that there are these anatomical correlations, that proves they covered the same corpse. Um, Okay, so next up, the uh, blood stains are corresponded. And you saw in that video with Mark Guskin, I think I still have that up there. But um, basically, the blood stains match, especially at the frontal stains. We have the 
uh, epsilon shape, and that can be made to fit almost perfectly. Um, and then on the back, the crown of thorns, Dr. Cesar Barta said in my show with him, this is very strong evidence for the wounds matching. And essentially Hugh Ferry in his counter to that, he says, well, this is complete bunk. If you look at the overlay images, right? Overlay the Sudarium's crown of thorn bloodstains over top of the Sudarium uh, crown of thorn bloodstains, there's some rough overlap in some areas, but they are radically different bloodstains. And this could just be formed by any random corpse. Uh, so there is no link here, according to Hugh Ferry. And Dr. Caesar Barta, I think, has a good counter response to this. And he, he says, well, look, yes, obviously there's going to be some subjectivity to our studies here. And, um, you know, in terms of manipulating the images, there has to be, they're in the same relative position. That means you need to rotate them a bit to make sure they're fitting their proper position or uh, the same the same size has to be used that's non-negotiable um but there is manipulation to get them to fit and they're not precise exact fits as i said before um and there are areas of blood stains on one cloth that aren't on the other and that sort of thing so it, it all boils down to this question well is there a sufficient amount of similarity between the blood stains to count and this is where you, forensic experts say yes and that sort of thing and there are other forensic experts who say no. Um, so what's a guy to do? Well, thank you, Dr. Cesar Barda, who has conducted, conducted an objective experiment and computer software to analyze this forensically. And the computer came up with a 75% probability that they covered the same corpse. Um, so yeah, that, that's it on, on that issue. I, I myself um, want to know more Sorry, I want to know more about the computer experiment. And um, because of this, looking at Hugh's thing, and I haven't had a chance to look at, um, to buy Caesar's book, which is 135 bucks. That's, uh, I don't know, I can't be buying expensive shroud books all the time. So um, now uh, Caesar did mention that he has the details of these experiments in the French magazine, the Montre News Ton Visage. But unfortunately, again, you've got to pay money to, to read these things. Um, and I tend to prefer free, uh, free um, papers and that sort of thing, because then I can freely share that with the audience and anyone and everyone can take a look at it. So because I'm lacking these resources, resources I assigned 55% for this factor that the blood stains are similar. Hang on, I got a yawn. No, also very strong. This is the strongest bit of evidence to my mind here. Uh, and that is the fact that with one of the blood stains on the sudarium, it's a half a blood mark, and the other half is found on the Shroud of Turin. This obviously links the two claws, right? So basically, on one of the claws, there's a donut uh, shaped uh, blood stain. And so there's a hole in the middle. So that was formed with one cloth where the body was in a certain position. It was pressing against and soaked up that part of the bloodstain. But there was obviously an air gap and it didn't transfer the other part. Um, so then when the shroud came on, just that part of the bloodstain remained. And then it got transferred to the other cloth on the shroud. Um, so these happen, according to Dr. Cesar Barta, they match, they fit, they align. 
proving there's half the blood stain, the same blood stain on both of these cloths. And that is an automatic proof. Um, obviously for myself, I, I do have questions. I, I did see these in the presentation. So I've seen what he's talking about. It is true. There is this donut shaped blood stain with the blood around the rim on one cloth. Um, but, and then the other corresponding one, and it looks like it does seem they would roughly fit, maybe not an exact fit like we would expect. It's not supposed to be an exact fit, but, uh, yeah, they do correspond pretty good, pretty well from what I've seen with my naked eye. Um, but I, again, I, I only assigned 70%, let me see, 70%. And assign 30% doubt to this feature, just again, because I, again, I want more details. I want some uh, backup from forensic experts talking about this specific bloodstain, which I don't have as part of my current data set. But Dr. Cesar Varda is an expert who knows the forensic experts. And I've seen with my own eyes, roughly what he's talking about. So this is pretty strong, 70%. Proven on the pro shred side that this half blood stain thing does link the two cloths. All right, uh, so that's that's I think it for the positive feature. No, it's not. One more. Um, the newest limestone studies. Um, so Dr. Caesar Barda he published his paper on this specifically the limestone dust. Sorry, I can't stop yawning. Emotional damage. All right, so there we go. Uh, so we're back. Um, okay, limestone dust is the next feature that we need to look at here. And um, essentially, I said that, uh, yeah, they found that there was limestone dust in a certain concentration that is unique to the Shroud of Turin and to the signature of Jerusalem limestone dust on the from the Rock of Calvary. Uh, and it matches the tip of the nose on the Shroud of Turin Man and the tip of the nose of the guy who was in the Sudarium. Perfectly, perfect match in terms of this ratio. And this is not found anywhere else in the world except for Israel and Jerusalem in this place. Um, and Oviedo's is totally different. So when they get this contamination, now Hugh Ferry the Shroud Skeptic, Hugh Ferry the Shroud Skeptic likes to counter that. Instead, he says... Well, guess what? They should have tested other areas. They should have tested uh, southern Spain because that's a closer thing, or North Africa, other areas. Why just Israel and Oviedo? That's an insufficient uh, control sample to test, right? And I would just say that the um, Caesar Barda countered that on the show he was on and refuted that stuff totally, number one, because we know the Sudarium was never removed from the Ark in these areas, so it would never get contaminated in other areas anyway, so it's irrelevant. Um, now, that isn't a bit of an assumption. I can picture Hugh Ferry saying, well, how do you know? When it was traveling westward, maybe someone took it out and rubbed it in the dirt or something like that. So um, to this, Dr. Caesar Barta has a response, and he says, well, that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter at all because they tested specifically in the bloodstains, entrenched into the blood stains, those dirt, and that was formed when the corpse was covering both the Shroud of Turin and the Sudarium person. And that's all that matters. And those are what match precisely to Jerusalem. 
and they match precisely what's on the tip of the nose in the same location. What would be the tip of the nose on, for the guy covered in the sedarium and then the tip of the nose um, on the uh, Shroud of Turin Man? So, um, yeah, ba basically, uh, I assigned a very conservative, helping out the Shroud Skeptics, let me see what I gave them, 60% on the limestone. Um, just again, because I, I want more details, I, I do want to, I wish there was more control samples given. I understand that there is the blood. You tested in the blood stains, great, that's cool, but it would have been great if there was, what are the ratios in other parts of the world? Couldn't it have come from somewhere else other than Jerusalem or Oviedo? There are more than just those um more than just those places that provide these ratios and stuff for the strontium and calcium that was tested. Um, it is very coincidental that it is on the tip of the nose. That really does suggest wherever it came from, it covered the same corpse. Um, and that's why I signed there's 60%. And that's me being overly conserved, very conservative here. And I think that Caesar Barta has done his, a good job answering Hughes various objections on his medieval shroud blog. So I've been convinced by them. Um, okay, finally, we have Hugh Ferry's counter features. Once again, I had images and stuff to show you. So Hugh ra raises various things like this. Just off the top of my head, he raises things. For example, um, uh, what it's called, the lights and darks on the shroud. Uh, and the, They don't match the lights and darks perfectly don't match the lights and darks on the uh, sudarium and also the bloodstains don't precisely match as we just said you've got to do manipulation to get them to fit and turn them around and edit them and stuff like that um, in terms of their position and problem is when you do that sometimes to align certain things like with the epsilon if you rotate it to fit the epsilon wound on his forehead then his nose and his mush blood stains are out of whack they're out of a line you can't get them all aligned at once and this is something that Hugh Ferry raises and yeah Dr. Caesar Barta and the Sudarium experts do have readily available historically plausible and forensically plausible explanations for this um, for these differences but it is important as Hugh says that there are these differences as well it's not all just a perfect match like what I thought before when I said it was proven beyond reasonable doubt. And because of that, I've assigned a 70% proven, again, 75% in favor of the Shroud Skeptic Hugh Ferry based on these various differences or counter features that he mentions in his blog. And um, that proves that they did not cover the same corpse, in my opinion. So that's kind of that. Um, so what's my overall judgment then in a nutshell? Um, basically, I will show you the calculation. So fitting all these numbers in, 72.53% probability that the sudarium and the shroud covered the same corpse head. And since we know the sudarium dates to the 6th century AD or earlier, that proves the shroud dates to the 6th century AD or earlier, to the time of Jesus, perhaps. Um, and it's therefore premise two is false. The shroud is not probably medieval. This is a successful rebutting defeater. And my goodness, it is strong. It's better than the Hungarian pre-codex evidence. That was only 
proven for me, given my subjective numbers, the sedarium is about 72%. So it's still not proven beyond reasonable doubt. I define that as 95.01% proven or higher, one to 100%. That's what we mean by reasonable, proven beyond reasonable doubt. It's not that strong, but it's above 70s. Um, I would have, before I did my calculations and broke up the elements, I personally, after listening to the Shroud panel shows, my intuition as to where I would be, I said I was about 75, between 70 to 75% convinced that the Sudarium uh, is proof that the Shroud is not medieval. And bada boom, bada bing, I, true to life, I got 72.53%. So that was within my range um, that I predicted based on intuition alone. And uh, so there you go. Yeah, I, I think I've done a great assessment. Again, I, I'm sorry, it's kind of sucked. I've just been kind of talking at you. Like I said, I recorded a previous, uh, what was that? Pre recorded a previous uh, episode that was much longer than this. It was over over an hour, all on Sudarium stuff. I had all the pictures and clips and stuff lined up for you, but that's uh, you know, stupid Zoom didn't want to download that onto my computer. So this is what you get. Um, I still think it, it will be helpful because you, I'm breaking it down into the analyzable bits. And through my blog, you guys can go and find all those pictures and all those papers that I would have been showing you in my longer thing anyways. Um, but at least this way you've got, okay, Dale breaks it up into this, the blood type AB, the the nose is the same, the ponytail, how does that work? The long beard, mustache, the uh, crown of thorn blood stains. Okay, what's my take on it? Let me go to his blog, ch check out the papers on that. Or uh, what about this half blood, blood stain, half uh, donut blood stain on the Shroud and Sudarium? That's a strong component for Dale. Okay, uh, let me look into that and see the pictures of these, stuff like that. So, um, and then obviously the, the Shroud Skeptic side for the counter feature, Hugh Ferry's blog, Medieval Shroud blog is on my website. So you can go and read his blog and decide for yourself if I was too generous to him in giving him a 75% disproof for the Sudarium evidence there. Uh, so yeah, that should be it. Um, yeah, uh, next topic will be the empirical scientific dating test of Dr. Giulio Fonte and Ray Rogers in terms of proving the shroud is first century AD.